0: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and I am Ben Schiller and welcoming today Cam Thompson. Hi Cam, how are you? It looks like you're on holiday.
0: Yes, well, not on holiday, just working remotely from another location. I am currently in Maine right now, and oh, nice! It's very nice, very breezy, a little chillier up here, but I'm not complaining, you know. Lots of lobster.
1: Mmm, lobster. Mm. <laughs> yeah, nice lobster for breakfast, lobster for lunch. Lobster Literally, for
0: dinner. lobster at every meal.
1: So we've got a bumper-packed show today. Danny Nelson is out he's at a hackathon in Utah which is a nice place to be this time of year as well and uh, then we're going to get to some big news in the world of crypto which is the issuance of a new stable coin backed by PayPal we're going to talk about it's very big news and we'll have David Morris who's the chief columnist here at coin to talk about that a little later on and let's get to that Okay, we're going to get to our next segment now, and we're joined by the great David Morris. He is a chief columnist here at CoinDesk. Welcome, David. Hey, glad to be here, Ben. Good to have you. So we're going to get to the big news this week, which is a new stablecoin from PayPal. It's on Ethereum. It's USD-backed, and it's a very big deal in crypto. Uh, PayPal has about 435 million customers, so this is seen as a big mainstreaming moment for crypto. Uh, What do you make of this, David? What are your big takeaways?
2: Yeah. The implications of this are, I think, pretty big. I think there are a lot of questions that still remain to be answered about you know, what PayPal's real motivation is here, what their business case is. But it's going to have, I think, pretty significant impacts, particularly on regulation, because I think this, this does put a fire under people in terms of getting some kind of structure in place by which these things are supposed to operate. And I think there are some interesting possibilities from a consumer perspective. Although I I wonder about exactly how PayPal is going to get people to to use this versus their regular service and how those will interact. So lots lots to discuss definitely.
0: So David, about thirty minutes ago, you tweeted, "PayPal USD will be the most censored and seized centralized cryptocurrency of all time." What are your thoughts behind that?
2: Yeah, well, I think this is a very important thing, and the fact that I think it's not. Totally widely understood is one of the reasons I tweeted that thing, is because you know everybody talking here, but maybe not all listeners know that not just Circle and USDC, but Tether, uh, which is you know mysterious offshore entity, they still cooperate with governments when they get anti-terrorism, anti-money laundering notices asking that they block particular users. So there are you know pretty constant cases of censorship on on Circle and Tether. I say PayPal will be the worst for two reasons. One is that PayPal already has a really established track record of being very quick with blocking people, seizing people's accounts, providing very little explanation, doing it for unclear reasons. And then second, I think that there will be probably a decent number of people who try and use this product in an illicit way, thinking that it is uncensorable because it's crypto. And I, I wouldn't put it past PayPal that that is at least like part of their thinking here. Not to say that it's part of their strategy or the reason they're doing it, but I think that they, they must be aware that there will be a certain number of people who misuse this product thinking it's something that it's not. So that was what I was thinking there.
1: So just to get on that kind of centralizing point that you made, I mean, a lot of people are quick to say this is good for crypto. But I guess the question becomes, what do you mean by crypto? Because, you know, okay, if you have this stablecoin, you can buy Bitcoin and Ethereum on PayPal with it. But it isn't necessarily an endorsement of an open source version of crypto, is it? I mean, a stablecoin issued by a company like PayPal is not really crypto in the sense of, you know, what we mean by the Bitcoin white paper.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that we're in the territory now where there is a, you know, it's not just PayPal. There's a debate within the crypto community about what that means and what we're actually going for. And I think it's a legitimate debate at this point because you do have fully decentralized, fully uncensorable things like Bitcoin, but stable coins are clearly part of the ecosystem. And You know, for better or worse, I'm not particularly fans of them. I I think that we would all be a lot better off if there was nothing equivalent to a US dollar in the crypto ecosystem. It would also be a lot smaller. So there are trade offs there. I think that in terms of what is crypto, there's a fight to be had over who gets to control and define that. But I will say, I think from a legitimacy standpoint, I mean, PayPal is a product that people use all the time and have for decades now. And so having them, Even in a sort of indirect way, even if they're not, you know, they've already embraced Bitcoin. You can buy Bitcoin on PayPal, that's already an endorsement. But for them to actually have a product of their own, a token of their own that they put their name on, you know, even if we might have philosophical debates about what is real crypto, I I think that there is an upside there for sure. I think there's a lot of questions about whether are you going to, from a technical perspective, be able to let's say use this PayPal dollar on like a Uniswap, how tightly are they going to rein it in? Are they going to, let's say, if you interact with a DeFi contract of any sort, you're blacklisted? Because certainly there's an argument to be made that there are legal risks there. So if you have a super conservative, presumably organization like PayPal, or or, I mean, demonstratively super conservative organization like PayPal that's very quick to, to flag things for AML KYC concerns, like, is this going to actually be part of the crypto ecosystem at all? I think maybe is a better question than, is it crypto? It's like, is it going to be allowed to interact with anything other than buying Bitcoin and ether on the PayPal app?
1: Right. So just to give some context there. I mean, stable coins are very important to crypto. They allow people to get in and out of, you know, these more traditional cryptocurrencies uh, and there's some of the highest volumes in this marketplace but it's still largely unregulated in the US. And actually, the biggest entity, as you mentioned, is uh, Tether, which is offshore and has long been shrouded, as you say, in, in mystery. What do you think this announcement will do for that regulatory debate? I mean, th- there is now a big bill in, in Congress, which has passed out of the House Committee, which seems to be a standardization of uh, the stablecoin market if it comes about. And it's interesting that when uh, PayPal made this announcement, that uh, Patrick McHenry, who is the head of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, made a rather interesting endorsement of the project, which is something that he wouldn't, or someone in his position, would not normally do, I think, saying it gives a kind of momentum to his effort to pass that bill. Uh, what do you think about the tea leaves here? I mean, do you think it will add to that momentum?
2: First of all, I would I would maybe say, I don't know if McHenry was per se endorsing the project, but um, he was definitely correct that just the existence of it creates a lot of. Well, just, pressure. To be, just to
1: be clear, there he said that this announcement is a clear signal that stablecoins hold promise as a pillar for our 21st century payment system. So it's a pretty clear endorsement.
2: Yeah, I guess it, I guess he was being positive. Yeah, um, which you know we'll we'll get into this, but I do think that like when you dig into it, the business case for PayPal there's no real short term business case. So I would say they have to have a long term thesis here, but we can get into that. On the regulatory front, yeah, I mean, I think that McHenry is spot on. It's interesting to note that the bill you're referring to, which I believe is the McHenry bill, it's the first crypto regulatory bill to go out of committee. And now this PayPal product is the first stablecoin issued by a major fintech, major U.S. fintech at least. So there's a couple of firsts here that I think are reinforcing each other, and and really will have people on you know for once not just the financial services committee, but but actual congresspeople and hopefully eventually senators looking at this and thinking about it in a serious way. Because PayPal is a big company, and I think that matters a lot.
1: Right. I mean, it seems to me that someone like McHenry would not make this sort of statement if he didn't think that that law had a good chance of passing. And it seems like massive coincidence uh, to the point of coordination that both PayPal would issue an announcement like this and this bill was going through a committee. There seems to be some expectation by uh, PayPal, at least, that it might actually happen.
0: So, David, you just mentioned that PayPal's a big company and PayPal operates Venmo. You know, PayPal USD is going to be available on Venmo. What do you make of this? Venmo is a very popular payments app. How do you see the integration of PayPal USD Factoring into Venmo's crypto strategy, or just you know Venmo payments in general, what do you think this might look like?
2: It's a really good question, and I should be clear that I am, well, not literally a boomer on this question. I am very much a boomer. I don't use Venmo. I I don't like bank apps in general. But I think that the question for me, in terms of like more generally, what is PayPal strategy? You know, if you look, PayPal is available in two hundred countries in like 25 existing currencies. So it's not like PayPal is going to like break out of its boundaries with this and suddenly be able to do international stuff that it couldn't before. Although, you know, maybe there are point-to-point transactions that this will enable that weren't under the other system. So it becomes a question of, is this perhaps genuinely going to be lower cost for the actual execution of, of certain transfers? Maybe. Are they going to cannibalize their own business by making these international transfers in a stablecoin format versus their banking rails that they already have in place? Maybe, but if they were really worried about that, would they be doing it? I think that the most obvious business case for PayPal really has to do with treasury rates. They saw Tethers, and, and you know, we have to decide whether we want to take Tether at face value with their recent declarations of their profit margins, but they're incredibly huge. And they have got to be bigger than the margin that PayPal makes on you know, its average retail user. So even if they get like 1% of those retail users to transition from a bank balance that is drawn on for your PayPal transactions or your Venmo transactions, and get them to go to a wallet situation where you have maybe 100 bucks actually essentially banked with PayPal and then you have 100 PayPal USD tokens and PayPal is the one collecting the the 5% interest on all of that retail deposit. I think that's the strongest business case on its face in the short term. I do think longer term there are interesting things. I think that you know PayPal mentioned web3 in its announcement and I think we should take them seriously with that that this is a, a thing that they intend to be a tool for payments in digital environments, not just splitting a check with your friend. So I think that's something to really think about. But that's really more medium term, medium to long term even. So in the short term, I really think it's, it's the interest rate. I don't necessarily intuitively see where this is going to have a huge impact on users in the short term. I, I don't see how you know, the experience or the product is, is, is gonna be changed by this when you're actually like in your Venmo app I, it's hard for me to imagine that. So you know, my guess is it's 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 largely interest rate driven, but we'll see.
1: It's interesting context here, uh, that people say that crypto is bad for the US dollar when uh, all of these stable coins are backed by US dollars. And if you look at Tether's recent results, you, you mentioned them being massive, uh, it was $1 billion in operational profits for that offshore entity. And that was almost exclusively backed by US Treasury. So again, that's uh endorsement Mm -hmm. of the uh, US financial system or the US dollar, and this is going to be the same. What do you make of that kind of strange paradox between the kind of death of the dollar resulting from crypto and then this huge endorsement of the dollar through all these uh, projects?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's, again, another case where, I mean, we're going to have to eventually just stop using the word crypto, because this is no longer just one thing, right? This is like three different things, at least. There's true decentralized cryptos like Bitcoin, there's business experiments and sort of smart contract stuff. And then you have stable coins. And I think those are three quite separate things that happen to use some similar technology. And in the stable coin case, yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge endorsement of the dollar, which I've been writing for, for several years now that like Bitcoin types will spend a lot of time talking about how the dollar is going to collapse. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's a realistic thing in the, in the current situation. I think that the, the use of treasuries for backing of all of these things does create a a new demand stream for treasuries. Because if you think about it, especially, you know, look at Tether, like USDC and and the PayPal dollar are a little bit different. But if you look at Tether, you have all kinds of users of Tethers who would absolutely not have been any part of the market for treasuries going back five years, you know. It's decentralized demand, at least, for a dollar-like instrument that this, this technology is enabling. So I think that that does long-term have some pretty significant implications for the dollar at a moment where at least you have like some efforts to decouple from places like India and Brazil and Russia. They're trying to think about how to do oil trades that are, are not dollar denominated. And so there is at least like the whisper of some kind of pushback to dollar hegemony. But now you have this other source of demand that, you know, obviously it depends on where you're sitting. And I obviously the dollar is... Uh, Its current situation is is not great for everybody, particularly American workers. But nonetheless, if you're looking to save the dollar, I think this is going to be a long-term additional demand stream for treasuries that we need, frankly.
1: All right. So David, Tether is the undisputed king of the stablecoin space and has been for a long time, even though people keep criticizing it and saying it's untransparent and uh, not really attesting properly to its reserves. What do you think this announcement means for them?
2: Mm, probably not much. I think that the main the main loser here, and I hate to say it because I I like them as a company, but I think Circle really loses here because they're pretty much offering a similar product to what PayPal is going to have, but they don't have the the platform or the name recognition and they've already been been trailing off for the past few months. So it's not great for Circle and and you know if you're a crypto person, that should be bad news for you because Circle, whatever else they are, they're a crypto company. PayPal is not a crypto company, and so there there will be some disconnects there. But as for Tether, I don't think it really impacts them. I think that they have still a, a lot of advantages in terms of, you know, their ability to reach certain markets that PayPal isn't even going to be thinking about, their willingness to reach certain markets that PayPal doesn't want to touch. And as far as the accounting issues I've always been sort of a fence sitter on the on the the tether truth stuff. They've definitely been not uh, up to the gold standard, maybe ever. Um, but I think we're we're starting to get perhaps slightly better signals from them. And I also, you know, in my full cynic mode, I also will have to say, I mean, tether's advantage is that it doesn't have to tell the truth; that it can like float in this realm where. If you believe hard enough in it, it still works. Over the longer term, I think that if the US actually regulates correctly and sets up a a, a meaningful system that maybe takes some of that business away from Tether, whether it's PayPal or USDC, I think that's great. But I don't think the US is, is on that track right now. And so, you know, it's another instance where failure to regulate is just offshoring risk in a way that makes it even worse. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind here, is that as long as there is not stablecoin regulation in the United States, we're helping them keep more market share and fostering this big pool of risk out there that nobody seems to be able to do anything about, really. PayPal is just here saying, we're available to, to take over this job from this non-transparent shadow bank, if legislators are willing to to give us the shot. So I think that's another definitely potential in its current form. I don't think it has any impact on Tether, but we could get there.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, David. Just to add a couple more things to watch, maybe. I mean, what does this mean for a digital dollar, the idea of a central bank digital currency? Do we need one of those if we have mainstream financial companies like PayPal issuing uh, stable coins that would seem to reduce the likelihood of that project getting off the ground? And if we do get regulation, what's to stop other big financial players or even companies like uh, Walmart, which have talked for many years about issuing their own stablecoin, from coming along and doing the same? I mean, why pay interest rates and fees to a third party provider when you can provide the technology yourself? I could definitely see a company like Walmart with its huge uh, trade reach from doing that. Uh, Surely there would be a big advantage to Mm -hmm. its uh, transactional cost. Uh, Anyway, thank you, David. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you.
2: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back to Cam's Corner. Always something crazy going on in NFT, Web3, Metaverse land. But today we're looking at data and we're looking at some pretty bad numbers. You know, things aren't great. Things are not great in the NFT world, but it looks like people are still building. So in a recent report from Web3 developer platform Alchemy, NFT trading volume fell 41% in Q2 also important to note that another report that recently came out from DapRadar showed that NFT trading volume has fallen nearly 50% since the beginning of the year. So this is a lot. A lot of people are not trading NFTs as much as they used to. There's not as much interest in, you know, transacting this ecosystem. However, back to this Alchemy report, over 6 million EVM, Ethereum virtual machine compatible smart contracts were deployed in Q2. So it looks like people are building in Web3, but they're not really transacting. Now, what this means is it's not to say that every single smart contract, you know, across these EVM-compatible chains, whether that be Ethereum, Polygon, Arbitrum, or Optimism, are going to be supporting NFTs, but it does mean that people are developing NFTs, but just not trading them. I don't know. What do you think about this, Ben?
1: Well, presumably they're building like that. They're expecting the market to come back at some point. Do we have any thoughts on uh, what that might be? What what that trigger might be?
0: The thing is, is that people have been building for a long time. You know, since the bear market really began, there were reports from Alchemy about developers pushing out many different smart contracts, installing Ethereum libraries. This was back in Q4 of 2022. However, you know, Ethereum is up. Ethereum's actually doing better than it was a year ago today. So it's really indicative of greater shifting tides in the market, you know, not just about the price, but regulatory concern, people not really seeing the same amazing returns or presumably amazing returns they did on some of these NFT transactions that took place two years ago. But I think people are expecting it to get better. But also, if it doesn't get better, I mean... Is that a terrible thing if people are still building and the market doesn't get better?
1: So you're saying that Ethereum has more dominance in the NFT marketplace, even if it isn't transacting as much?
0: Exactly. It has this dominance. And even though Ethereum's up, NFT trading volume is still down. But what if there is this changing narrative where people are building Web3, not for financial gain, but just for the nature of the technology? I don't know. Hmm. Do you expect do you see that? Or do you think that might be coming?
1: Well, I happen to think that Ethereum is going to come to dominate most of those smart contract transactions because of, you know, the kind of law of the network effect. So um, over time, I would expect it to become more dominant even if the transaction levels go down overall. Absolutely.
0: And just by nature, if people are continuing to build or deploy smart contracts across Ethereum and all of these other chains, I mean, I'm not really sure about which chains are going to rise to the top if we're going to live in a world where there are a lot of layer 2s or there's one main layer 2 or side chain that kind of takes dominance but the value will continue to go up if people keep building but it seems like people don't really mind right now they're just continuing to build no matter what goes on
1: just one further question camp so have we seen any changes in the type of NFTs that people are transacting i mean is the volume down because of the lack of, you know, those classic kind of uh, avatar type NFTs or is it because there's a greater kind of diversity in the type of NFTs that people are producing?
0: So there isn't really a lot of information about the types of NFTs. But one thing that I want to note is large collections that have huge market share have recently slumped in value. So in the beginning of July, Board Ape Yacht Club was down to a 20 month low of nearly 30 ETH. And the popular Azuki collection, its floor price has fallen 63% in the past month. There are a lot of these collections that used to be very strong and have a lot of community support that now are losing that. And they're losing it because they don't know how to scale right now. It's a really hard time to onboard more people to NFTs. And a lot of the holders who expected that they might have a little bit more return on their investment just really aren't seeing that. So that's really where a lot of the trading volume is going. And Yuga Labs, the company behind Board API Club, is responsible for so much trading volume in the space. And the fact that they haven't even been able to deal with this, I guess, sentiment from collectors about not being willing to trade or just really not interested in purchasing tokens right now, it is indicative of a greater market sentiment that people are, just aren't interested in NFTs right now. It's really sad.
1: <laughs> it is sad. I mean, maybe uh, expectations grew too quickly that people flooded into the market, the prices went up, and everyone thought that it was a quick killing. Uh, But it might have been better for the market if there'd been more of a slow build and more kind of capacity built over time, and that would have mitigated this kind of slump at this time.
0: Exactly. I think that people are burnt out from the bear. You know, all these people that bought Ethereum three years ago made huge returns on their investment in 2021 and then purchased NFTs, made even greater returns, and then You know, obviously, Ethereum went down, prices of NFTs went down, people are kind of left with really low liquidity and unsure of what to do. And this has been going on for a while now. And obviously, Ethereum's back up, but the collections aren't. So people are kind of in a weird place with their value or the value of their assets. I don't know what's going to happen, but... I guess it's promising that people are building. (laughs) I mean, people like to build in the bear. So it's good that people are actually doing that.
1: So Cam, I mean, obviously everyone's obsessed with trading volumes in the NFT market, uh, but there is a train of thought to think that actually trading volumes don't matter as much as we think they might do. Do you agree with that line of thought?
0: It's very interesting because trading volume is important for NFTs. It's something, however, that you need to think about with context. So in a story that Deputy Managing Editor of Web3 Desk, Rosie Perper, wrote in May, she asked this question and spoke to a radar analyst who was basically saying that a lot of the trading volume is created through Blur, which is the largest NFT trading platform. But In trading on Blur, people are incentivized to earn tokens or Blur tokens through this airdrop. So they'll be trading on that platform anyways, and they'll be making these transactions. Whether or not they really want to, they're incentivized not by financial gain. Well, I guess they're incentivized by financial gain, but they're not incentivized just to trade for their own profit. They're incentivized to earn this token. So in the context of Blur, that's interesting because you know that is kind of created or inorganically you know people are going to be trading because they just simply want to get this token. but in that case, you know there are other instances where trading volume is or needs to be taken into context. I mean, in the past month with the price of azuki falling, a lot of people sold their azukis, and you know these azukis were much more expensive when they sold them just because they didn't want to be in the collection anymore, wanted to really be a part of something that didn't have much value. However, now that they're much cheaper and people are still selling them, you know, it's important to think about what the market's doing when people are selling these NFTs, because that factors into this overall number.
1: So they're not trading for dollars, they're trading for blur.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Everything's about blur. That's the story. All right. Well, that was Carpe Consensus. Thank you so much for listening. Ben, thanks so much. Danny was out this week, but he'll be back next week, hopefully with some exciting stories from the Hacker House. And make sure you tune in next Thursday when our podcast goes live. And in the meantime, if you like listening to us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. If you have any questions, if you want us to talk about anything, please let us know. Well, we'll catch you next week. See you guys later. Bye. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.